Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi friends. For a long time now, I wanted to dedicate an episode on China and its rising aspirations in the technological sector. Even though many of you might follow topics related to the Belt and Road Initiative or China's unique model of digital authoritarianism within its borders, today I wanted to talk about something which isn't always in the media spotlight. For today's recording, we focus on the geopolitics of digital standards. How and why has Beijing gained more and more prominence in international standard-setting organizations and what are the wider implications for the global technological sector? And, of course, its impact on the EU in the long run. Also, for the first time today, we'll have two guests who will present a recent report devoted to the issue. Our first guest is Olaf Vincek, who has been the first director of the Multilateral Dialogue of the Konrad Adenauer Foundation in Geneva since 2019. And before that, Olaf has been the coordinator for European policy in CAS Berlin office. Our second guest today is Cedric Ammon, who joined the multilateral dialogue of the Adenauer Foundation in Geneva. Cedric has previously worked for the Diplo Foundation and the German Research Institute for Artificial Intelligence in Berlin. Olaf, Cedric, thank you for joining us. Recently, the Konrad Adenauer Foundation, together with the Diplo Foundation, published a report devoted to the geopolitics of digital standards. I open the floor to, to my guests, and can you please walk us through briefly about the reasons for this report and your overall aims with the project? Yeah, thanks a lot, Dimitar, and very happy to be here with you, and thanks for the invitation from, from both of us. The country that is most influential in setting standards and norms in general and in setting digital standards in particular is the country laying the tracks for future economic leadership. So therefore, what is happening in international standardization fora is not only interesting for engineers and tech nerds, but also has or at least may have a geopolitical dimension. So if we try these days proof uh, the point, I think, to talk about the more geopolitical European Union, the area of standardization is a field which really merits attention. Also, standards are indeed in most cases a technical issue, but when we talk about issues like facial recognition, for example, they do touch upon ethical and human rights issues. In the past years, you probably have read articles as well, there were repeatedly rumors about not only a growing, but even a dominating role of China in these international standardization organizations. However, there was relatively little research on that, a lot of hearsay. So the goal of our report, China's role in standard setting organizations, which we have commissioned and jointly published with the Diplo Foundation and the Geneva Internet Platform, is not supposed to be a hit piece on China, but it shall map actually the influence of China in these organizations in order to provide a factual base to the discussion and to the debate, which has uh, gained pace in these past years. So what are we trying to do is to examine a the strategies of China in international standardization policy. Secondly, the representation of China personnel-wise in these organization, organizations and their various expert bodies and committees. 
And thirdly, also to outline examples how China is trying to shape digital standards and whether uh, this may be problematic for the EU. Yeah, I really liked your comparison in the beginning for laying the tracks and the, the importance of these standards for the future development of the ecosystem. And this is why these international actors can gain more prominence. But before we dig deeper in the report, I also went through it, of course. And maybe you can first off tell us a bit more about these international digital standard setting organizations. Um, I'm not sure if all of our listeners are aware, well aware of all these organizations or the, the dynamic uh, in them. It'll be great if we can have a very short introduction. Also, hello and thank you from my side uh, for the invitation to your recording today. Um, and to your question, uh, it is true, the standardization ecosystem, especially on the international level, is quite complex. In this area, it's important to highlight that we're uh, mainly looking at the digital standard setting uh, ecosystem, um, because broadly speaking, there are many, many more organizations that are very relevant for the different technical standards that exist out there. But Broadly speaking, we can, um, we can identify three categories of organization. Uh, the first one being on the formal organizations, uh, such as the International Standardization Organization, um, short ISO, the International Electrotechnical Commission, the IEC, and the standardization body of the International Telecommunications uh, Union, the ITUT. And these three are quite important because they're also recognized in the WTO um, technical barriers to trade agreement, which means that they are identified as their standards will, um, will also be recognized in case of uh, some, uh, some argument and some cases that could be brought before the different panels at the WTO. Then we have quasi-formal organizations such as the Internet Engineering Task Force, which doesn't have a formal membership, where engineers, uh, mainly engineers, but also people who want to, can join and uh, participate in the work. Um, a very important one for especially 5G is the 3GPP, um, an organization with uh, uh, has seven organizational members, but again, is strongly, um, has a strong influence of private sector as well as another organization, which would be the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, the IEEE. And finally, I would say there is uh, the consortia industry forums in which um, uh, also some organizations can decide to elaborate standards which they adopt. Um, there is no separation of domains per se, but what these organizations do have in common is that standards are voluntary when they are elaborated and adopted. And also these are elaborated through consensus as much as possible. So they try to avoid voting and um, to come to common agreement. Yeah, and uh, thanks, Cedric. And as, as far as I remember, in all of these uh, international standard setting organizations, the USA and especially some Western European countries really took the lead in the development of these standards uh, decades ago. But it's interesting, as, as your report mentions, that the picture started changing in the 90s and 2000s when Asian actors such as Japan, uh, Korea and China became inc increasingly prominent in, 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 in these spheres. 
Now, why is China become becoming so assertive and active at, at, at this front? And why should we keep track of the, these developments? Basically, convince us why this is not only a, a geeky niche topic. Well, China uh, sees its strong role in these international standardization fora as a key instrument for becoming the world's leading country in innovation and becoming the world's leading economy. So if you want to really put it in a nutshell, China's goal is um, to become a maker of norms instead of a norm taker. And this is one of the, uh, does its engagement, let's say, in international standardization fora is one of the key ingredients to achieve exactly this goal. And I mean, um, I think one of their uh, goals, it's even public and uh, openly said, is to become a market leader in uh, artificial intelligence until uh, 2035. And this goes in general when we deal with China, I think. If they tell us or if they write, we will do this and this until then and then, we should take it seriously. You know, it's not always like, I don't know, the Lisbon strategy or things like these where you have, you have very ambitious goals. You know, some of them are achieved, others maybe half achieved, others are not. No, there is a goal and they will do everything they can to try to achieve this goal. I mean, therefore, China strongly encourages also technical experts as well as businesses um, to engage in these fora. I mean, when we talk about, and the report gives a lot of numbers, details and graphs and so on, um, about the increasing uh, personnel and increasing presence of Chinese representatives in these organizations, we're talking about all levels. So you see it, of course, on the very, on the highest level. So for example, until uh, end of this year, the uh, uh, director general of the ITU is Chinese, but you also see it in, in the administration. You also see it with the um, representative, uh, with the state representatives who attend meetings but also very strongly businesses. I mean, Huawei, for example, is very present in various fora. Um, also engineers, researchers, and this is a joint strategy. You know, they are not just running around uncoordinated there. Um, they are men with a plan, basically, or women with a plan. Um, it's a joint strategy, what they want to achieve. And this is what I would say sometimes may um, distinguish them from some other countries where one has the impression, you know, the industry is doing its stuff, the state officials are doing its stuff, they sometimes not, maybe not talking with each other. Um, so this is not the case for China. China is way more strategic in that matter. What is also interesting is that China actually gives even financial incentives to businesses in order to engage and to submit proposals, which leads to the fact that uh, China or Chinese businesses are submitting so many proposals that it's sometimes really difficult to keep track. And what they also engage in is forum shopping. Meaning, I mean, Cedric, I think, uh, told it very, or, or gave a good impression that sometimes it's not very easy to 100% know which is the appropriate forum for what. And China is benefiting from that in many senses of when it sees, well, this proposal is not going anywhere in forum A. Yeah, let's try maybe another one. I mean, China is not the only country doing that, but I would say China is one of the countries who is, who are, which is most, most active in doing that. At the same time, as you uh, said, the European presence is decreasing and it makes it increasingly difficult also for European representatives to follow all these developments. I mean, we're talking about several organizations, um, uh, a bag full of focus groups, committees and whatnot, and each with proposals. I mean, this is quite a lot to follow. So why is it important for China? I mean, it's 
on the one hand, you can say, well, it's important to ensure also it's increasing integration in the global economy. So if you want to, um, uh, if you want to be uh, well integrated, economically speaking, then of course you have to adapt to global standards. You have to be active in shaping of standard. But also by shaping global standards, trying to reduce costs for its own businesses. And last but not least, and I think this is often underestimated um, in the EU or from European perspective, well, they, they often argue, well, you know, the market in the end will show which standards are valid, which uh, will in the end survive. But one should not underestimate the importance for these international standardization organizations for sub-Saharan African countries, for example, or developing countries. I mean, we saw it also at the recent forum um, we went to, is a lot of African representatives were there. They're taking very seriously what, coming, what is coming out of the organization. And what does that mean? If you can waive the ITU stamp for a certain standard, then you have easier market access. So shaping standards according to one's own priorities in the end facilitates access to emerging markets. And therefore for China, particularly also in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative, these international standardization fora are crucial. Yeah, the, these are great points. And, and just I want to reiterate, the fact that they're being so persistent on so many different levels and they the Chinese take a very holistic approach to 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 to, to this topic and they approach different stakeholders, different fora. And indeed, I think they're even overrepresented in some of their their positions in in these in these organizations. If I recall cor correctly, uh, the, the the head of the International Telecommunications Union is is, is Chinese, and they they've had, a continuous strategy in the last more than a decade to fill in as many personnel positions, either with, with Chinese or people who are close to them and, and potentially close to their networks. Now I want to jump in the essence of, of, of your report. Um, the report has a number of case studies which are quite interesting. And the first which, which got my attention was about the so-called new IP and the novel um, internet infrastructure. I remember um, some time ago, the Financial Times even had a big piece on, uh, quote unquote, uh, China reshaping the design of the internet. And this has become a, a talking point in, in different policy circles. And this overall narrative that the Chinese are so persistent that maybe they even want to redesign the architecture of the internet. Well, I don't have a definitive answer yet on is this happening or not. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll quickly run through what happened and then um, maybe give a, a short outlook on this proposal. Initially in September 2019, it was uh, submitted to a standardization advisory body at the ITUT um, by a group of, of Chinese companies including Huawei and, and, and China Mobile. And they asked the ITUT group to design a new information and communications network with a new protocol system that, and I quote, that satisfied and serves for the future. The idea behind that being that the current IP system is in need of an overhaul. I think that is something that many actors have uh, been looking at and have been trying to find solutions for. And um, there is still debate on how to best approach this. The uh, more contentious part about uh, this proposal, this new IP proposal, that it came from a rather top-down architecture. It was redesigning the architecture that we had already. Um, and some of the ideas that were a bit uh, more critical were this idea of many nets where you would break down bigger networks and connect them through gateways. 
which could be on one hand seen for, for greater security and including uh, and increasing stability, um, but where it would also be easier to well either shut down networks or um, also use those gateways for backdoors in which you can then uh, conduct more espionage and these type of things. Um, and then in, in, in later standardization assemblies, it was broken down and you would find some of the wordings like such as future vertical communication networks, um, which included especially this idea of many nets, um, which again were rejected. They were not taken into um, the study groups, but it, it showed that this, it was not let go of this idea right away. And in addition to that, in around the same year, around the same time, this proposal also came at, uh, was submitted to the IETF, which was another standardization body, um, where it also didn't really fit the spirit because it came as a, I want to call it a package deal. It's like, this is the architecture that we want to submit. And at the ITF, that's not necessarily how things go. Um, you usually try to have more of a bottom-up approach and fix some of the elements. And it has um, some more uncertainties what it would actually solve, like because it's not, um, it's not compatible with the current IP system. So it could have been very costly, et cetera. And the other element so, so just, that... just to just to intervene there, there was pushback and and um i mean these uh, these proposals they're not you know adopted quickly there was some pushback from from international actors and my follow-up question is do the chinese get a lot of support from the developing world on on these topics because we've seen traditionally the last couple of years that especially the developing world i think it was the coalition of d77 we also see them acting together on, on the climate front do they have, does China have their support um, or it's a mixed picture? I think it's a mixed picture. What we see now is that some of these elements of this initial new IP project um, are being broken down. And for those, there are support also from, from, from Western side. I think um, there, you can't completely shut it down just because it came from one part of the world. But um, on some of the more critical issues, the security networks, et cetera, yes, they do um, gather uh, more uh, agreement from, from some developing countries that also have a similar idea of a top-down internet that would be easier uh, controlled through access providers where it would be easier to um, turn on or off, shut down some of some parts of the internet in, in, in local areas. So as you said, um, it's it's a it's a mixed bag, and we shouldn't be jumping to quick conclusions that the internet as we know it is is being shifted, and China is the grand puppeteer behind it. And there's there's pushback from different organizations, and it's of course a long process. M most of it is consensus building as well. Another um, thing which was very interesting for me in the report was the section on 5G. And this is something I've been following uh, personally as well in my research. And um, it's, it's been known for some time now that when it comes to 5G uh, patents and overall advancement, companies like Huawei and, and Chinese uh, actors, technological actors in general, are uh, big, big market leaders. Um, and they're also very prominent in these standard setting organizations. So what's happening there when we talk about 5G? 
Um, well, I think you're ve you're very right. A lot of uh, it is uh, is being said in the in this area, and uh, especially I mentioned before the three GPP is one 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 key standardization venue where this is being discussed, and in there. It is true. You, you look at the numbers, the leadership positions are uh, majorly uh, from China. The uh, Huawei is the most active member in terms of submitted and approved standards, um, as well as standard essential patents. So those that are necessary for um, other uh, technologies to be built upon. Because 5G is such a crucial network, it is, really has a promise of improving speed, bandwidth, and um, we are also expecting an exponential growth in the number of connected devices because of this technology. The implications for national economy and security are just that much higher. Um, so in this case, I would say uh, it's, it's a bit tricky that they've, they've been led by, um, by Chinese actors in so, so much, and that's why it's, it's difficult to then say, we have full control over this network when, yes, these standards have been elaborated on consensus, but they clearly come from a certain way in which the view of the network is different. Again, coming back to this, linking it to the new IP, it's a very top-down approach. It's one where there are possible ways to include backdoors, which we just don't know about. As you said, and this is a great point, when we talk about 5G, the, the amount of devices and the interconnectedness between devices is going to grow a lot. And especially when we talk about um, the Internet of Things, IoT, and when everything is interconnected, this has massive implications for cybersecurity. I think that uh, I've seen some reports that many, many of the devices, especially the cheaper devices, they're quite lax when it comes to these hardware and especially software cybersecurity. So the, the question about 5G patents is, is extremely, extremely important. And I do hope that we see more activity and more involvement from Western actors or transatlantic allies on this because we see the Chinese really taking the lead. I want to ask our guests, what is the future outlook on all of this? Um, and what are the most notable policy recommendations of your report? Well, the report does not mean to be alarmist, but it wants to raise attention to a growing imbalance that we have in some of the standardization organizations. And I think that, that uh, Cedric also outlined and the consequences this may have in practical terms. I mean, it's not bad per se that China is engaging in these fora. I mean, it's better that they engage and that in the end we have global standards because, you know, China is a, is a very big economy and is a growing economy. So um, this per se is not a problem, but what is a problem is that we see that there is a growing imbalance in this organization and that it's not in the EU's interest that this imbalance is, is, is growing. So if the EU takes its own ambition of digital strategic autonomy um, and uh, being the leading economic and innovation power uh, seriously, it should not ignore these developments. I mean, what can we do? Well, limiting China's influence, because we sometimes get the question, um, or limiting its presence, it's not an option, because simply China has not broken any rules with its strong engagement in these fora. I mean, you can argue, you know, they're doing too much forum shopping and, you know, they, they, they kind of... Uh, uh, going quite strongly in that area, but this per se is not illegal either. And I mean, if we really want to counter the influence 
then we have to match China's engagement in order to even the odds. So what does that mean in practice? I mean, it, it means increasing presence in these fora. This goes, of course, for um, officials, but also for businesses to um, motivate also European businesses to, um, to uh, at least follow what is going on, but also academia, research, the research community and civil society, and to empower them to participate in these organizations. I mean, this, it's not always easy to, to kind of find what, 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 you, what you need to find and to, to know which focus groups uh, you have to engage with and so on. I mean, this is, uh, if, if there was ever a competition for most transparent international organization and uh, international organizations website ever, the uh, commission and the European parliament would be far ahead uh, of the ITU, if, if I may say so. Um, so, to, but it's therefore I think quite important to empower these these um, actors, businesses, the research community, um, techners, let's say, um, and civil society organizations in that matter to to engage there. I think one step which is absolutely crucial is to increase, and I mean you have yourself alluded to that, to increase the coordination among like-minded countries. I mean, particularly in this year, which is an election year, also which where we have at the end of the year. Uh, a bunch of new posts and which is also the uh, possibility to kind of reset the priorities of the organization. Um, I mean, and this coordination should not only be going on just among EU countries. I mean, that is already great if that happens and it's, we see it in Geneva that it happens increasingly, but it's also important to go beyond that. I mean, to coordinate with the US, with Canada, with um, Australia, New Zealand, UK, Norway, um, uh, and, and other like-minded countries. I think this is absolutely crucial um, in order to uh, counter this or to reinstate a good balance in these organizations. It's also very important not to be colorblind to ethical and human rights implications in the organizations. I mean, when we talk about facial recognition, but also increasingly about, you know, artificial intelligence, um, we, we sometimes get the answer, you know, technical standards are technical, you know, let's, keep politics out of it. It's, it's often true, but in many ways, one should not underestimate these kind of dimensions. And therefore, it's, I think, very important to enable the exchange and the dialogue among officials, the tech communities, and the civil society on proposals discussed in these fora, because the tech people, they look at the tech side of things. The um, civil society or the officials have more kind of this political sensibility. And I think to enable their dialogue is very important. And most of all, engage with representatives from developing countries on that. Um, I think that's very important to, um, to integrate them also better in the system and also to, um, to increase the EU-AU di dialogue on these issues. I mean, I would even ask European parliamentarians to raise the issue of standardization, standardization policy um, regularly in their contacts with their um, with their uh, with parliamentarians from um, African countries. I think that would be uh, that would be also a very crucial step. Yeah, th these are these are great points. Uh, I mean, making sure that we team up properly, especially when it comes to personnel selection, and elevating the conversation on on all of this. And and you're absolutely right. We cannot differentiate. Um, technological policy from politics. I think this is this is an um, argument, especially in today's world. This is an argument which serves the Chinese in a way. It's something they would they, they would like to say. You know, we keep politics out, but actually they manage to squeeze in their own 
political or, or business interests. If we zoom out a bit, and this is a question to both of you, and comment how all of this fits in China's bigger strategy. What's Beijing's long-term thinking you know, on technology and economy? You mentioned already certain goals by 2025, by 2035. Where is this whole thing going? Because we see a very um, complex um, effort on different sides. The Chinese are firing all cylinders, different organizations, different stakeholders, different tools. How can we respond to the to this activity, even though that they're not doing something illegal? I think I, I can just underline what Olaf just mentioned. We were able to observe that these strategies have been planned long ahead, and they are, and and, and especially Chinese actors are are very uh, efficient in in putting them into play. So we can actually take their them at their and these strategies at face value and be like, okay, well, the, the goal is to become a production leader. And we know that this is a playing field in which European actors can also uh, prepare for it. They can be um, in the standardization field, be more present, but also in, in, in other elements, coordinate more. I think these, uh, this, the, especially this coordination aspect among actors, among like-minded states, um, and also integrating, like reducing the standardization gap is, is, is really important because we're also talking about future markets um, and, um, and, and, and combining and, and integrating this a bit more um, will also be very, very beneficial from, from our side, um, be it towards a rivalry towards China, but also other actors uh, in general to, to maintain the the competitiveness of uh, of Europe. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to add one thing. I mean, this does not only go for uh, the discussions at the ITU, for example, but even on the WTO on e-commerce, so on electronic commerce. So if we manage to have a consensus among the more or less like-minded countries from liberal democracies, um, so if we have, for example, a compromise or a coordination between the EU and the US, uh, well, it's hard to go against that. I mean, China is a very influential actor, of course, but if you, if the EU and the US in these kind of fora, they act together, of course, with the other like-minded, then this is already an alliance which is more difficult to uh, overrule. And this goes also for the discussions of the WTO. Final quick question, one sentence each as an answer. Are we overhyping China and its role in the technological sector. Is this a self-fulfilling prophecy from you know, American, European media, policy field actors, or we should actually be concerned and even worried about the long-term developments? I think we are not exaggerating. We should be cautious not to see a conspiracy uh, behind every corner. So I think on some issues, sometimes the discussion is a bit too alarmist. And then there are other issues which kind of go unnoticed, but which are very worrisome. So I think, yes, we should be concerned. And again, what Cedric said as well, one thing we saw is if they say they want this and this is our goal and we want to get there, they will try everything to get there. So we should just read things and take them seriously. We should not engage in hysteria, but we should take this issue uh, seriously, definitely. And I think... Um, this, or we hope at least that our report can contribute to that. Okay, Olaf is cautiously realistic. Cedric, how about you? 
I think I preferred taking it from a from an angle of then let's play. If you look at the, an, another team and you see their strategy, what they're doing, then I think it's not only pointing out what they're doing, but it's also being ready ourselves to play, to embark on this. There is a reshuffling. Digital technologies have so much promise. They are with us. We are They're, they're growing closer um, to our everyday lives. And so that means that we now have the possibility of shaping them. And, and there are other models out there. They, they are competing. They don't necessarily share the same worldview, the same values that we have. So then, well, if we want to have our own, then we should definitely be present in those roles and, and, and also show what we have and what we can do. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, this was the voice of Olaf Vincek and Cedric Ammon, both of them who are working for the multilateral dialogue of the Konrad Adenauer Foundation in Geneva. Dear listeners, make sure to check the Konrad Adenauer Foundation and Diplo Foundation report on international standard setting and China's presence. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. 